0: You that we can um, come this morning and and expect to hear from you. Lord, thank you for how good the story is that you have written a story of yourself, a story of your grace and loving mercy towards us. Lord, I just pray that um, you might speak uh, through me, please, Lord, this morning. And Lord, you you might really um, impress this. Deep in our hearts, Lord, that we might be able to trust you in all things and all times in your goodness and live out of that, knowing that we don't need to look elsewhere. So we'll pray that you might uh, speak to us now, even in this slightly strange format that uh, we do all this in. Uh, For your glory we ask it. Amen. Well, I, I was telling you, I, I don't know, maybe a few weeks ago, just a, a, a little bit about sort of where, where I grew up. I, I, I didn't grow up in a very sort of um, posh sort of area. So, you know, one of the things about that was it was sort of news to me to realise that there was, a, a, amongst many other things, a difference between sort of off-licence wine and good wine. Um, when I was in Wales, I was close friends with uh, with the undertakers there. And um, I ended up doing a lot of work with them, um, of course, uh, sadly, but uh, I'd sometimes get wined and dined by them. They they, they were quite into sort of um, fairly fancy restaurants and things, so uh, every now and again they'd be kind enough to sort of uh, take me with them. So I'd put on the one suit that I owned, uh, which was my my funeral suit, uh, and and go to these restaurants with them. and, and actually one time me and Karis were invited to this country manor with them where they put on this, this little evening for, for people who were involved, uh, you, you know, with, with the company. Uh, it was a very, very nice dinner. I was I sort of put, on, put on the top table with, with them for some reason. Um, but one of the things they did was they had this wine tasting. They had this great sort of sommelier. I had to look up that word uh, <laughs> to find what it was. It was a host who had introduced all these sort of uh, different wines, you know, knew, knew all this information about them, the regions they're from, and you know, why they've been selected, and all, all these different things, you know, this was really good wine, or, or at least so everyone else was saying, I, I couldn't have really told you uh, any differently, but the good stuff always has a host, whether it's someone who introduces you to a great album that you've not heard of before, whether it's someone who introduces you to a great restaurant, a great meal, or a destination to go to, or perhaps even a, uh, a friend or someone who becomes a future partner. Well David here plays host for the most supremely good thing of all, the goodness of God and that's what he's doing here in these first seven verses he's introducing God's goodness and all that he's saying is look how good God is so good that you've no need to look elsewhere ever again and David will play host for us here and we'll see him make this plug in verses one to three and then give something of his story by way of sort of testimony in verses four to seven And what's most amazing, perhaps, about this is the context in which David writes this, because David writes this in a time of intense suffering and personal distress. You might see, if you've got your Bible open there, a sort of little note just sort of before verse one that tells you a little bit about when this was written, that this was written when David had changed his behaviour before Abimelech. You can read about this, actually, in 1 Samuel uh 21 and some of the detail of this because that note in some ways makes it sound slightly more sort of polite uh, than the reality first Samuel chapter 21 verses 10 to 15 tells us about what was going on here This says David's under threat of his life here rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish the king of Gath and the servants of Achish said to him is, is not this David the king of the land did they not sing to one another of him in dances Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands and David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Akish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behaviour before them, and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Akish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Saul was the king who was reigning, but his reign was doomed. And he was trying to kill David, the one who's destined to reign, but isn't yet. And so he's on the run for his life. And he flees to Gath to find safety. Except this is a strange place for him to go because Gath was Goliath's city. That's Goliath, the giant that David had killed. What's more, actually, First Samuel 21 verse 9 tells us that David at this point is carrying Goliath's sword with him as he enters Goliath's city. And they already can recall David's military victories that have their own jingle to them. Because God is good, even when pushed aside, even when put down, even when his life is threatened, God's goodness has been over David's life. But the question being asked is, well, why does David come here? Has he come to gloat? (laughs) Is is this going to be another attack that he's going to launch on them? Why is he looking here for help? Surely it's not gonna come. Surely David, above anybody else, is persona non grata here in Gath. He's killed their great city's hero. His only hope is to feign insanity and sort of ends up looking somewhat like, I imagine, sort of Tom Hanks in Castaway, a bit of an old sort of movie, but where he ends up stranded on that beach, uh, talking to a volleyball that he paints a face on here is david (laughs) the great uh, soon-to-be king of god and this is what he's sort of reduced to and it's at this moment that david writes this i will bless the lord at all times his praise shall continually be in my mouth david stops in the midst of chaos and calamity and realigns his heart you see that there because what we believe shapes our affections that produce our behaviour or to put it another way what we think what's in our head shapes what we love or what we fear that's what's in our heart that shapes our actions that is what our hands do and so he realigns his heart here verse two my soul makes its boast in the lord He's like a great host introducing us here. Look how good God is. My soul is satisfied in him. This is how good God is, that he can say this whilst a fugitive and feigning insanity. That following God works. And so he says, let the humble hear and be glad. There's a reality that you need a certain amount of humility to respond to God, to accept your need for him. And to admit that your self-sufficiency hasn't worked. It hasn't worked trying to order your own life, but that it does work following God. So he says here verse 3 that you'll magnify that's make much of the Lord. Make much of the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. He calls us to join with him here. The things of the world aren't good, but God is. The things of the world leave us feeling empty, that we always need something more, that we always need something else, but God leaves us full. If you choose to pursue success, thinking it will be good, you'll have to sacrifice everything sooner or later, health, family, family, relationships, you'll never enjoy it and you'll never feel you truly have hold of it. You'll always feel it's somewhere just that bit further in the distance. You'll always feel that it's under threat. If you make it about your looks, about looking a certain way that I'll just feel, uh, you know, fully myself, if I can just feel I look a certain way, you'll never really feel attractive you'll always have this anxiety that you go through and the effort that you have to go to will leave you feeling spent it'll leave you feeling empty if you make a relationship the thing that you see is truly good beyond god no one will meet your expectations you'll either never really believe uh, that they really do care about you you'll you'll question it and doubt it And you'll become despondent. Or you'll perhaps end in anger and resentment at the missing your expectations. The things of the world, even things that are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, leave you feeling empty. But God leaves you full. There's this transition now from this appeal uh, to us to now David's own testimony and story here of experiencing God's goodness verses 4 to 7 he says I sought the Lord and he answered me the word there sought uh, it means um to beat out a path I made a path to get to him it's it's there's determination there there's there's action there it's I mean to try to describe it, it it isn't like when I ask my children to go and look for something and they can't look past their elbow it's not that kind of sought It's not the kind of looking that I say I'll do when, well, this is kind of in the old days now, but you know, when one of those kind of charity representatives in the high street kind of collars you and you don't want to be rude. So you say, well, do you know, have you got a pamphlet I can take away home with me? And I'll I'll have a look at that. It's not that kind of looking. This is seeking out, beating out a path to it. It's, It's the kind of looking that you do when you try to build a career, when you try to make a relationship work. That you try to find a home where you try to provide for your family. It's beating out a path. There's a determination. There's an action there in it. He says, he delivered me from all my fears. In verse 4 and then continues in verse 6, to say, this poor man, that is me, David, cried and he saved him out of all of his troubles. Look at that. He delivers me from my fears, but he also saves me out of my troubles. We fear many more things than we actually face, don't we? But God delivers us from them all, both the things we fear and the things we face. And now we get here uh, two experiences, verses 4 and 6, and two truths in verses 5 and 7. Verse 5 here, we get the, uh, the result of this here. That those who look to him, look to God, are radiant. If God is good and the things of the world are not because in part the things of the world leave you feeling dirty whereas god leaves you feeling radiant if you see approval as being the thing that really in reality is is the thing that gives you most sense of of goodness of feeling whole of feeling meaningful if you make things about approval, you'll be left feeling dirty for the way you had to manoeuvre and gossip and spin your way to gain approval and uh, avoid disapproval. If you make it perhaps about something like food or drink, you think it will help you feel better, but actually it makes you feel worse about yourself after. The things of the world leave you feeling dirty at the end of them, Whereas God leaves you radiant. We can trust God delivers here also because, see verse 7, that second truth, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. He protects us. We don't, of course, often see that, but that's the truth of what is happening for us. And so David here is a host introducing us to God's goodness. And so it leaves us with two questions just at the end of this section here. Have you known God's goodness? And secondly, who are you introducing to God's goodness? And notice what David doesn't do here. There's no exhaustive argument to explain God. In many ways, it's just a statement of who God is with no real explanation. It's just declared. And he just speaks of all the good that God has done for him and for us. But who are you introducing? like that. Secondly, we move from God's goodness being introduced to the experience of God's goodness. I used to uh, really enjoy watching, I haven't watched it for a long time actually now, but uh, watching MasterChef, The Professionals, um, and for me the best part of the show um was there was maybe a five ten minute sort of section where one of the chefs at the time it was michelle rue jr or monica galetti his uh, uh, sous chef would take you through a masterclass, and i found it just the most relaxing uh, sort of bit of the whole show where you just watch a master craftsperson doing what they're good at and it's amazing you just see them in their kitchen making this great dish the time the care the skill that goes into it it's fantastic I just love watching someone who's brilliant at what they do just doing that something really enjoyable about it but it's the best part of the show and the worst part of the show because really I don't just want to watch it of course by the time you spent five ten minutes watching all the preparation and work that goes into it and all the explanation of the flavors and everything else you want to eat it because the test is really in the tasting And here is the same reality with God's goodness, too. It's not enough to just talk about it like it's some sort of concept, but it's taste and see that the Lord is good here. Verses 8 to 10, here's that challenge. Put it to the test. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And he appeals again here to uh, a sense uh, and an action like look to God, seek him out, use your eyes to find him. You need to taste it to experience it you need to appreciate it blessed is the man who takes refuge in and tells us not only protected from disaster that that was some of the message of the previous verses wasn't it that you'd save us out of our fears and uh, also out of our troubles but it's more than that it's more than just saving us from the disaster but positively being blessed and yet here's a twist here in verse nine fear the lord you as saints for those who fear him have no lack this is perhaps just to pause and ask a question here, is it really right to, to fear God? Is that is that really something we should uh, feel and experience with him? And yet the word tells us that the beginning of wisdom is to fear God. We're told uh, by Jesus himself in the Gospels not to fear uh, man who can harm your body, but to fear God who has the power over eternity. But is it good to fear him? Because in other places we're told that God's perfect love casts out fear well this is a different kind of fear this is not the sort of fear you might have for a boss where you might perhaps fear your boss because you know have certain power over you have power over your employment and ultimately if they wanted I suppose they they could fire you couldn't they if you uh, you know were disrespectful or whatever else it's not that kind of fear it's not the kind of fear over a tyrant Uh, that you might have, of someone who might abuse you, of course that would be a bad sort of fear to have for God, God is not like that. This is more like the fear you might have for a parent, a good parent, but nonetheless that you fear in the sense of you want to respect, you want to honour, you don't want to go against them, that good sort of fear that you have as a child for your parents. It's that kind of fear that's been talked about here, that sort of paternal uh, fear. See, the problem of fear isn't that fear is never right. There are situations where fear is absolutely the right response, isn't it? It's why we actually even chemically have this sort of fight or flight response, because there are certain instances where we need to be afraid (laughs) and take evasive action because of it. It's not that fear is never right, but it's about fearing the right things and in the right way, isn't it? God is the most supreme, the most sovereign, most glorious object. It's only right, actually, that there is an amount of fear because there is nothing beyond or above him. He's the only object really truly worthy of fear. God is good, and the things of the world are not. We don't need to look elsewhere in fear, because God is good. He's the only thing worthy of being feared, but also as well, the kind of fear that we experience with him is much, much different to the world. It's not the same. It's not the same kind of fear we have of the things of the world, of maliciousness, of of abuse and tyranny. It's the fear of a parent who loves us and ultimately has our best interests always at heart, but that sometimes may have to tell us we're wrong and may have to correct us. The world may seek to tear down, but God won't, and won't let it tear us down. Those who fear him have no lack, told here. And in verses 8 and 9, there's two ways of saying the same thing. In verse 8, it's positive, that we'll be blessed. And in verse 9, it's in the negative aspect, that you'll have no lack. But it's two ways of saying the same thing, isn't it? To be blessed, to have no lack. It's a way of reinforcing the idea that... Following God's goodness works. And we get this great image from the natural world here that no matter how powerful you may seem, you're still dependent upon him. Verse 10, young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. As strong and powerful as a lion is, they're still dependent upon their being. Pray around them. And in fact, lions can go days uh, on end without eating. Because as strong and powerful as they may be, if there's nothing to feast on, there's nothing to feast on. Your power won't change the way the table is set. This very image of power is helpless without God. God is good and the world isn't. God has the power to actually provide that the world doesn't have. So what should we do if we want the good life? How do we take hold of it? Well, now we're given some teaching here. Verse 11, I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. There's a paternal call here. Oh, come, children. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. I'll show you how the fear of the Lord is grounded in actual concrete actions. Firstly, there's the thing of attitude. It's being willing to learn like a child. Being willing to be called a child. Here, God is good and the world isn't. God is good enough, actually, sometimes to call you out to adjust your attitude when you're wrong in a way that sometimes the world wants to always tell you that you're right, even when people know you're not. And it's no good thing for people at all, actually, is it? It's actually good sometimes to be told when we're wrong. That's actually a more loving thing, isn't it? Actually, I think we all know that sometimes where we don't correct certain people uh, on certain things, it's not out of love. It's out of not wanting to put the energy in, isn't it? It's actually out of a sort of apathy getting towards actually not loving because we just don't want to go through the hassle. But when we have people we love, we're willing to do that, aren't we? We're willing to take a little bit of discomfort for a time to resolve a relationship. What man is there who desires life that he may see good? Strange question surely it's everyone isn't it everybody wants a good life don't they but how what does that look like how do you get there well here it's we're told it's through fear in the Lord and this fear produces actions fear of other things things other than God produces actions doesn't it produces actions you can see it in things like sleeplessness or restlessness more generally You can see it in overthinking, you can see it perhaps in lethargy, or distraction, or anxiety, or anger. Fear produces a multitude of fruits. And so the fear of God also produces actions too, and so we get some of them here in verses 13 and 14. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit or lies or speaking treacherously. It impacts the way we use our words. This is one of those things that might seem quite small. You know, wouldn't it be a bigger, grander gesture, bigger action that has more effect? And yet, actually, it's really huge, because sometimes we miss the importance of words. James chapter th- uh, 3 gives us uh, great lessons on is the value and the importance of words. We know even from Jesus' words himself that words reveal our hearts, Luke 6 verse 45 out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks or as my mum used to put it many a truth told in jest sometimes in those moments that people feel as though they're free that their guard is down you hear aspects of what they really think haven't you heard it said haven't you said it yourself oh I didn't mean to say that oh I didn't mean it to come out that way how the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks? Words dictate our moods. How many of you can talk yourself into a bad mood? How many of you try to talk yourself out of a bad mood? Words can dictate our moods. If you control words, you actually can, to a large extent, control your whole person. James chapter 3, verse 3, it says, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so they are best, we guide their whole bodies. It is the point to talk about words as well. If you can control your words, actually you can control your whole person. That actually, if you can control words, you can control the course of your life to some degree. Carries on here, verses four to five, that we, though ships are guided by a very small rudder. They direct them and the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So often our words, both wise and ill-advised, set our course. They can open and close relationships. They can open and they can close opportunities. And words can cause great damage, verses five to six. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire and the tongue is a fire. How many of you might know the destructive power of words over you? Perhaps a label that you've been given. Perhaps a dismissal. Perhaps a critique or a word of rejection or criticism. Those words can leave a lasting impact, can't they? And they can take a long, long time sometimes to be healed. And yet, we're told here, verse 8, we can't perfectly tame our words. No human being can tame the tongue, James tells us. You can't just repress and guard your words. They'll slip out eventually. Your only hope is to be changed. The goodness of God, when it works with us, changes us such that our words are changed. If we believe that God is good so that you know that you don't have to look outside him for joy, so that you know that other people are not a source of your joy and they're not a threat to your joy, the joy isn't a destination that you have to try to furiously navigate yourself towards where people are potentially an obstacle you realize that you don't have to use your voice to try to discredit or to try to dishonor or to try to dismiss nor do you you have to expend energy um, to twist uh, to to spin to self-promote to self-protect to airbrush things When you know and you trust that God is good, you don't need to try to amass approval or to preserve a sort of sense of your perfect performance before people. You don't have to fear others. And then you don't have to tell those kind of half-truths, mistruths or gossip. It affects the way that we use our words but secondly here verse 14 turn away from evil and do good seek peace and pursue it and again it's a very similar word to before uh uh, seeking that beating out a path towards it work hard to find it to make it you want to experience the goodness of god well then firstly reach out and taste it taste and see that the lord is good but secondly turn from evil and do good put your faith in him turn away from sin and follow him and finally we see God's goodness in action we see it firstly seen in action in his righteousness in verses 15 to 18 the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears towards their cry and then in 16 we get here that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth and you see how the two verses they're parallel to each other eyes and face toward and against the righteous and those who do evil. He is being towards their cry and cutting off their memory from the earth. God works for the righteous and opposes the wicked. He must do that. To be truly loving he must both judge and oppose wickedness and express compassion uh, uh, and love. Otherwise His love is substanceless. It doesn't really mean anything. The loving Lord drives out wickedness with a ruthlessness that is equal to the compassion with which he shows the righteous, those who love him, those who trust him. God is good and the world isn't. So you don't need to look elsewhere to find justice and compassion that only God really offers. Verses 17 and 18. Here we go. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears, he delivers them. We've heard of his uh, both judgment and then support of the righteous here. But now he delivers us here. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, he saves the crushed in spirit. God's goodness is seen here in the way he hears, delivers, comes near, saves the righteous, the brokenhearted, the crushed. Maybe not the people that you would expect. Maybe not the people that the world would think would be the first people in the queue. The crushed, the broken hearted, the righteous. But God's goodness is also seen, lastly, in his deliverance in verses 19 to 22 here. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And he's honest here, David. He's not promising an easy life. And remember the context in which David is writing this from. Things are not easy for him. He's on the run and fear for his life and having to sort of feign insanity to try to find a way uh, out of it. God is good. The world isn't. God doesn't give you a false promise of no pain like the world so often does. But it promises to deliver you at the end of it. We get this great verse, here. he keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. It's one that John uses as he reflects on the uh, the death and crucifixion of Jesus in this gospel. But we'll skip over it just for now for sake of time. Verse 21, your affliction uh, will slay the wicked, we're told here, but those who, hate righteous, uh, those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The wicked and the righteous both face affliction, but it looks different. Verse 22 here, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Both the wicked and the righteous face affliction, and that may seem unjust in some ways. There's the New York Times best-selling book, isn't there? Why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, Eventually I may get round at some point to writing my significantly less popular sequel why do good things happen to bad people because it's equally true a question to ask isn't it that sometimes some very bad people do very well in life and you wonder at times how fair that really is it doesn't seem it does it both the wicked and the righteous experience affliction here But they're different experiences. They're different in two ways. They're different in their purpose. The wicked face affliction and it destroys them. That's the purpose of it here. The righteous do face affliction, but it disciplines. It's not to destroy them, but it does discipline. It does shape us. It does knock some edges off. It does smooth out some some rough parts. But also the destination is different. Did You notice that at the end of those two verses there. That the wicked will be condemned, that the purpose is for judgment, that there is no salvation beyond it for those who refuse to turn back to God. But for the righteous, they will not be condemned, they will be saved. They're quite different experiences. But God reveals his goodness in action in his righteousness and in his deliverance. end with this. Ivan uh, Illich was a 20th century uh, Catholic priest, philosopher, social activist um, in Latin America and lots of his ideas might not perhaps uh, sort of see eye to eye with Uh, but he has this one great bit of wisdom. He was once asked uh, in the course of his work what is the most effective way to change society? Was it through a sort of violent revolution or gradual reform? thought carefully about it, and answered, neither. If you want to change a society, he said, then you must tell an alternative story. Or perhaps we might refine that slightly to say, you must tell a better story. The gospel tells us a better story than the story that the world tells you. The world tells you that everything that is good is something outside of you it's something you have to look for it's something you have to reach out for and to try to grasp hold of but that you find you never really do get a hold of you find it's always just somewhere further in the distance god is good and every good gift is from him and he protects us and he delivers us and he saves us from our sin and out of our emptiness. But the best gift of all is, of course, he gives us himself. Jesus at his birth said over him that he is Emmanuel, God with us. That the goodness of God is found most of all in God himself, in a person, in Jesus whom is given to us the goodness in life isn't something we have to desperately look for beyond ourselves it's not something we have to desperately try to cling hold of in case someone might take it from us or something might rob it of us it's not something that's always there but we can't get a hold of it's here in Jesus and he's so good we need not look elsewhere we need not find ourselves slip into fear or anxiety or disappointment or discontentment. And so David gives us three calls as we finish here. To taste the goodness of God for yourself. To taste it again, whether you're someone who's followed Jesus a long time, nonetheless. To taste and see that he is good. Or perhaps whether you you haven't yet. To perhaps move from the place of perhaps just following along your parents' faith to the point of yourself actually tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And following him and trusting him and experiencing his deliverance and salvation in your life yourself to taste and see. Secondly, to praise his goodness. That's how David's begun, isn't it? And in so many ways in his Psalms, the beginning is really the ending that he hopes that we'll end up doing as he does at the beginning. That we will, with him, make much of the Lord. But thirdly, to play the host, to introduce it to others. Notice what David does. There's, there's, there's no really skilled argument. There's no detailed point by point answer of every question that everyone would possibly have of God. It's just simply a statement of and declaration of God's goodness. And here's how I've experienced it. Sometimes we can make uh, sharing our faith so much more complicated than it needs to be simply playing host in actually the way that we all know when we share a great album we share a great meal we share a great uh, you know person or holiday destination or wherever else and we just say oh it's just so great and we have all that praise for it actually it's just the same answer with Jesus isn't it actually we don't have to have the answer for every single thing you just have to be able to share God's good and here's why here's how I've seen it in my life he's delivered me even from the darkest and most difficult of places but it's good so you don't have to look elsewhere let me pray for us and then we will uh, sing a closing song together my faith has found uh, a resting place that mark will uh, will lead us in father i just thank you for your goodness towards us uh, we've all experienced in in different ways over this sort of last year or so there's been obviously a lot of difficult challenges and uh, you know for, I know for many of us you know there's been some really difficult moments in that and it can be easy for each of us Lord to in, in in different ways to just wonder sometimes how how good you are and and we find ourselves tempted perhaps to look to other things that are good things they're not Bad things in and of themselves, but to be tempted to maybe see them as more important than they really are. And when we lose them, to feel despondent, or when we lose them, to feel angry, to feel that we have to kind of be restlessly going out there to seek them to try and get them back. We can all be tempted to do that with different things. Lord, we thank you that there is no need to do that, but that you are good. And we don't need to look elsewhere. That everything that we need, you've provided. And you've provided it most of all in the gift of your son. We thank you, Jesus, for having been pleased to come, to live a perfect life for us. That you might die for us in our place, to forgive us of that same sin that we began this morning thinking about, that same shame and failure. That you might cleanse us. You might redeem us. But Lord, even more so, that you would... Give yourself to us, that we would find all that we would need in you. Help us, Lord, to know that we can trust you and depend on you. Just like David, here in this awful situation that you'd look at and think, wow, what a, what a terrible place to find yourself in. And yet, David is able to find that strength and that encouragement and that purpose in you. And Lord, for us too, in all that we face, we can find all that we need in you so holy spirit i pray that you might ask just to minister this to our our hearts now that we might be able to be fully trusting you and help us lord That then that might shape you know the way that that we live and that we speak and 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 live with one another and and especially lord with those friends who don't know you yet but would you help us to be able to play host to your goodness to be great sommeliers who just point people to your goodness and all that you've done for us in our lives so we thank you lord and i just pray that you would uh, minister to our hearts i pray amen